Welcome. We are live. Uh, apologies to those that were expecting a countdown, but I, I missed that completely. I was We've lost so it. We've lost the countdown. We've lost the countdown. So I was trying to put stuff in the private chat, which I think I've put in the public chat. But those are the joys of going live. So welcome to Speaking About Speaking. And my guest is Simon Raybold. Simon, welcome to uh, Speaking I'm About Speaking. So very much looking forward to this. It could be fun. Yeah, me too. So tell us a little bit about what it is that you do, Simon, because obviously we're in this in a similar space, but we kind of have a different sort of uh, approach or background. We do. In, in yeah, what yeah, we yeah. Do. Um, I have a much harder race background, I think, than you do, uh, because I spent my life, I spent 24 years as a research scientist, and I got into being a presentations trainer when I realised that scientists were flipping awful at explaining what they did. Uh, to be fair, the public is also flipping awful at understanding what they do, even if they explain it well. But scientists were flipping awful at, at explaining it. So I shifted my substantive research from what I had been researching for the past two and a half decades into the science of communication. Uh, and then gradually, eventually left university research and moved into teaching people how to make presentations. So I don't do the, the nice woolly edge stuff that you do. <laughs> I do the the research science says this works for most people most of the time. Stop making excuses and do it. Ah. Now, to be fair, there are exceptions to every rule in the same way as there are, you know, it's, it's a rule that men are taller than women, but there are short men and tall women. So, yep, there are exceptions to every rule, but I play hardline by the stats. This works for most of the people most of the time. Start with that. And if you think you're an exception to the rule, you're probably wrong, but we can talk about it. So, so what, yeah, what, it made the, what made the switch from you? First of all, tell me, what were you researching? What was your thing? Uh, my PhD was looking at, had looked many years ago. My PhD looked at the causes of childhood leukemias. Oh, okay. And then I'd spent 24 years uh, as a social scientist looking at what could loosely be described as life chances. So if you were born in this postcode on the west end of Glasgow, you were likely to die 10 years younger than in that postcode on the east end of Glasgow. Uh, why was that? Uh, and stuff, stuff like that. Right. So what, what prompted the shift? It was exactly that. It was the realisation that scientists are really rubbish at explaining what they do. Um, it was, it was... But it is, it's quite, as you can imagine, for me, looking at that, it's quite a strange, I mean, I can understand where you're coming from, but what was it in you, do you think, that made you think I can, I'm the person that can make the difference to how these scientists are presenting? Because Well, I'd also spent seven years touring as a lighting designer for dance companies. I'd been a professional actor and a professional playwright. I'd been a fire eater and a whole bunch of other things. So there is a performance element to uh -huh. my kind of my, my, my interest, my, my real life, as it were, um, which is what gave me the arrogance to go, yeah, I can do this. But what actually drives me is the knowledge, is the, is the science knowledge. I, I have that stereotypical researchers, scientists, arrogance where you go, look, the research says this, and if you disagree, you're wrong. Um, and I have to try very hard yeah. to make sure that I don't just go, you're wrong. Yeah. But I, I kind of get some feedback. But that's, I mean, that certainly makes it uh, more understandable and easier maybe for you than for me to go into those kind of organisations 
that are sort of dealing with those very black and white presentations and yeah. sort of, you know, help help them in that way. Whereas, whereas um, I don't know, I have worked with engineers and worked, you know, with people that have a lot of data that they need to share. And I try to go from that woolly angle of trying to, well, tell a story and, you know, people will remember the how you made them feel, not what you're telling them. So how how was that? How did you find that? And do you, were they sort of quite open to you going in there and telling them that perhaps they needed some help? Every organisation is open to me going in and working with somebody else who desperately needs it. But I'm OK. It's them. They're the problem. Um, but it made it easier for me in, in that sense, yes, because I would go into, I can and still do go into organisations and go, look, your sales pitch isn't working. Why is that? Or you're explaining this new policy on children's safety and no one's adopting it. Why is that? Or you've got this big conference gig coming up on internet security and there's $5 million worth of work riding on it and you don't know what you're talking about. Why is that? Um, and I can I can relatively easily play hardball under those circumstances. And it helps, and this is going to sound so, please, please, please forgive what I'm about to say because it's going to sound so... But I've got an advantage in technical environments because I've got a Y chromosome. And that doesn't actually give me an advantage. Of course not. But it gives me a perceived advantage with the people that I'm, that I'm often, that I'm working with. So you're predominantly working with men is, is no, makes I'm your life. Working, I'm predominantly working with people who are technical. Um, statistically, that does tend to be slightly more men. Yes. But it's, it's the, the special thing about them is that they're very, very good at what they do technically. Um, so I don't typically work, for example, with people who want to be professional speakers. I work with yeah. people who have to be speakers as part of their profession. Yeah. So, so then you know, they could be computer programmers or accountants or whatever. Yeah. So then how, how do you get them to, I mean, as I say, I kind of wrap things up in stories and, and that, that kind of try to get people to come from a, from a, an emotional side, no matter what it is that they've got to deliver is kind of attaching it to an anecdote or a story or whatever, just so that, you know, that the audience have something to, to go away with. But I assume what you're doing is you're dealing with people whose audiences are also very technical. So do you, do you think that, do you think that makes a difference? How do you, how do you start in, a, in an environment like that? Doesn't change the way you deliver, except no. I'm I'm going to flip it around. And what you were describing there was hooking the data onto a story. Yeah. Um, the research suggested it's better to go the other way around and hook a story onto the data. So you give people a fact, and then you give them a story to illustrate it, back it up, yada yada yada. It almost doesn't matter which way around you you play with it, but you're looking at data and stories hooked together so that people people remember them. Although the use of the word story sometimes grinds my gears. Yes, no, <laughs> because... I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> because people very often go, tell stories, tell stories, tell stories, like some kind of reciting parrot without actually understanding that it's not the story per se that makes something more memorable. It is the emotional hook that that story gives you, and it is the pattern that that story represents. Now, if you can give them the hook or the pattern, or preferably both, without a story, then... You don't need to start. A story is a means, not an end, is the point yeah. I'm trying to make, I think. Yes. 
No, I agree. I absolutely agree. You know, people stand on a stage for a reason. They have, there's a reason that they're there. I suppose I because of the the acting background that I have, it's a, I, I come from sort of the motivation side of, of what motivates people. Why are they there? Why are they still on the stage? Um, and it, for me, I suppose it's it kind of helps people take an audience on a journey but also it helps them to remember it's their story so they're not going to forget it and and so you know there's lots of that sort of thing that is attached to to yeah, what absolutely. I absolutely it's it I, the, the people I'm working with are very clear why they are on the stage they are on the stage because it's part of their job and if they get it right the world is a little bit of a better place it really is as simple as that. If they get it right, their company will make more money. If they get it right, there'll be a better fundraising scheme for a charity. If they get it right, this new idea someone's got about medical tech will get funding and all of that kind of jazz. So for me, it's very, very much about the end point. What, what do people need out of the presentation rather than the presentation itself. The present I've said that stories are a means to an end within a presentation. I'm going to go even further and go, for me... The presentation is a means to an end. The end being more funding, better policy adoption, yada yada, whatever it is that they're whatever it is that they're looking for. So, if we've got people listening tonight that are, are here with us this afternoon, should I say, and are listening to this, and they, you know, they have a lot of data that they need to get across to an audience, and they're feeling like they're a little bit monotone, they're a bit dull in their presentation. What do you do to kind of raise that uh, the, the monotone thing your... is really quite fun and the, the technique i'm going to give them i'm guessing you have almost certainly used yourself i just get them to read children's stories um I, I've, I've got i've got well, hang on a second, i've got one here handy yeah go tell it to the toucan literally got it right and you do the voices because nobody reads their children in a bedtime story that goes let's go home little bear said big bear that's a good idea, Big Bear, said Little Bear. I mean, they don't do that. You go, let's go home, Little Bear, said Big Bear. And the, the, the same thing happens when you, you give them that as an exercise. <coughs> Excuse me. And then when they're all hoo, 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 all over the place, you go straight into delivering the presentation with that variation in, in yeah. speech. <coughs> Excuse me. I've swallowed a fly. <laughs> um, and they just go straight into sounding more interesting. It's It's... I'm almost certainly going to be using the same techniques as you. It's just that yeah. I'm coming at it from a different philosophical standpoint, if you see what I mean. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I get people to explain stuff to me as if I am a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or, you know, like just tell me. And then it kind of, it gets them in a different mind space yeah. so that they're actually, they lean into you. They want you, they want to draw you into that conversation. And if you kind of put it from okay. that angle. Okay, now in which case I do use a slightly different approach to you. Uh, the best analogy I've got perhaps is a tennis coach. Um, this is me, a, a, a tennis coach kind of going, right, we're going to practice your backhands now. And then five minutes later we'll go, let's practice your forehands. And then I will say, I, I'll give people exercises to get them better at that. And then I will put those things into a match by giving them real real data, if you see what I mean. So it, it's, it is... I don't throw people into the let's do stuff. I give them an exercise to make them better at it and then apply it to the story, the data, the whatever it is that they have got to communicate. In the same way as a tennis coach won't make you play tennis, they will give you an exercise that makes your forehand better and then you will go into a game. 
That's a really rubbish analogy. I need to find a better <laughs> analogy than that. It works. I think it works. I think it works. Yeah. Um, I think, yes, I, I mean, obviously I do have, I have the, the kind of the, the technical exercises that that I give people but um yeah it's quite it I do enjoy which I always loved when I was facilitating acting workshops is is watching people make it up as they go along and actually you know just have fun with it and that's kind of what I what I do is is like okay this is your presentation now you know give it to me as if I'm if as if I'm a seven-year-old you know talk to me as if I'm like 93 and a bit deaf or it's you know it's kind of things like things like that which I I enjoy I suppose no I will do those but I will do those right the way down the down the end product um those yeah. are the things I do last the things I do at the beginning are the exercises before they devise the presentation and then yeah. we'll play with that presentation only when it's nailed down yeah because I'm dealing with people who they don't want to be speakers. <laughs> they want to be safe every step of the way because they are accountants or computer programmers or yeah. industrial chemists or whatever it is. Yeah. Obviously, I just I love getting people to play because then they I, I find they relax. They hate doing it. And you do have to kind of drag them, drag them screaming and shouting sometimes. But it's actually quite nice to once they realize that they can play. And they can relax a little bit, and you know they're not gonna they're not gonna die. So actually, <laughs> it's you know it just gets them a little bit relaxed. Before we carry on, I'd just like to um, acknowledge that there may well be people out there listening, and please, if you are out there listening and you have a question to ask, stick it in the comments, and uh, and we will <coughs> we will endeavour to answer whatever question you throw at us. So please, and if you are listening to the or watching the replay, then again throw us a comment, we'll, we'll endeavour to get back to you. So, Simon, I mean, on the, on the note of uh, your fire-eating background and your performance background, and <laughs> in light of the fact that you have been this sort of scientific researcher all these years, I would like to get onto this book, because <laughs> this is... It's a Sissy Berry book. Yes, Sicily, um, yeah, it's Sicily. Sicily Berry, who was a fabulous voice... Uh, an acting coach now you've met her I haven't met her I have to say this book was given to me when I worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company and I was leaving to go off to drama school and it was signed by, by oh, lots wow of I am would... so I firstly I am so jealous but secondly I've just noticed that there is a question popped in from sorry can I just go sideways and deal with Susan Murphy's question oh yes yes I mean I I I did I was sort of keeping my eye on on the questions as well so but we'll, we'll yeah go for that yeah uh Susan how did it handle reluctance I, do you mean reluctance of people to present uh in which case the way I handle it is by is by baby steps is by just giving them one exercise and they go okay I can do that and then you give them a slightly harder exercise and they go okay I can do that um by the time you've got them to actually making the presentation, all they are doing is applying this technique in this exercise, this technique in this exercise, this technique in this exercise. And I can do all of those things individually and I, 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 I bring them together. If you mean reluctance as in shy, <laughs> well, that's a, that's a whole different ball game. Or if you mean reluctant as in introvert, that, again, that is a, an interesting question. My experience of introverts, actually, to be fair, is that they do tend to make better presenters because they care less about the audience than, than extroverts do. Um, they may be more reluctant to get on the stage and make the presentation, but they do a better job of it once they are there. I'm not sure that, yeah. 
they really don't want to be there sometimes. Absolutely. So uh, what I'm what I'm talking about very very much in the, the work that I do is given that you have got to be there. I will give people techniques to make it less painful to be there. So I'm not going to try and persuade anybody to go on stage and make a presentation who doesn't want to, or who no. rather who doesn't have to. That's not no. my bag. That's I'll leave that one to Jackie. That's that's fine. I am <laughs> no, just I, talking I, about people who have to be there and they yeah, know. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's there's no way. If somebody want doesn't want to do that, then you can't make them do it. Doesn't matter whether it's you or whether it's me. You know, if people have that that kind of fear, it's it, in, in all of the classes I've ever, ever run, if, if somebody's been reluctant, it's been, it's, I let them sit on the edge, I let them watch, and then they, they come in of their own, they have to enter the space of their own accord when they are comfortable with it, when they feel safe. Yeah. And I, th I think and, that's, you know, that, that's, that's certainly that's, that's, that's the an way interesting difference between the two of us, because what I will do is teach them a technique a very specific technique. Here is a way of breathing or here is a way of standing or here is a thought to think that will make you more, either more confident or less unconfident. Um, in this, it, you know, on, on a very technical level, it could be how you breathe, or it could be a technique called sentence zero, which is to say something in your head before you say it out loud. Actually, I, I do love sentence zero because it doesn't make you sound, it doesn't make you any more confident, but it makes you sound so much more confident, uh, which is, you know, almost as good. Or there's there's all kinds of researchers stuff from um, Alison. Oh, what's her name? Professor Alison. Never mind. <laughs> uh, there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of psychology research stuff that, that techniques that we can apply. Or there's some techniques which I've uh, nicked from sports psychologists and that kind of. I give them a very specific thing to do. Yes. Yeah. No. Absolutely. As I say, I've got I've got all of those sort of structured techniques. If if somebody is sort of reluctant to to really get into the space, it's very very difficult. But but going back, I mean, obviously talking about the, the research, and we will find out Dr. Allison and and put her Allison, Allison, her Allison. details in there later. But in terms in terms of this book, because I know you worked with with Cicely, so what uh, I wanted work, to ask working you is an exaggeration. About... She 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 taught me. That's 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 an exaggeration yeah, to say I worked with. <laughs> that's great. But obviously, this is a book that's used by actors this is the book that the actors and the people at the Royal Shakespeare Company dis said that I should have before yeah. I went to drama school. So I'm just wondering in terms of what you do and how you work, the benefits that you got from, from being a student of hers and oh, how, how, that sort of, how that sort of went for you. The, the reason I'm laughing and saying that's interesting is that the, the first non-research book I wrote was the Little Big Voice book which is to take all of that wonderful stuff that Sissy Berry has in Voice and the Actor and all of that kind of jazz and go, um, she has the best people in the world for two hours a day every day. <laughs> I have normal people for two hours and, and, and crowbar all of that into some bog standard breathing techniques. Very, very simple step-by-step diaphragmic breathing exercises to rush people in a, in, a, in a sense rush people through so they sound better and all of that kind of jazz um and it was for me it was a almost a bastardization of sissy perry's work but it was something that kind of had to do to translate to get it into quotes the real i hate using air quotes but you know in, into the real world whatever the hell the the real world is um, because working with actors 
is a different kettle of fish altogether to working with real people because they, you know, they have a, a very specific personality type. They have chosen to make a career out of risking their emotional sanity and pretending to be somebody else. Whereas the people I work with almost certainly have chosen the very opposite of those circumstances. So my take on Cece Berry's work is, is to go, that's, it's awesome. It's absolutely fantastic, but it won't, I've never yet found a way of making it work for the head of accounting or senior lawyer at or, or whatever it is. So I've got a very bastardized version of it, if you like. Wait, hang on a second. So the model I use is just take a, a penny whistle and take it upside down and go, let's break your voice down into three bits. There's, there's the power, there's the generation of the sound, and there's the control of the sound. Uh, and the analogy I use very much is that the power stuff comes from uh, your diaphragm, your lungs, the generation stuff comes from your vocal folds and all it does is make a noise, but to turn it into words, um, you need to do the fingering, which is the equivalent of, of working on your lips and face and all of that kind of jazz. And because I am not working with actors who have to project, I am working with real people who are either in boardrooms or at conferences for me, it is much more about the clarity of diction than it is about the diaphragmatic projection. For my, I'll rephrase that. For my clients, it tends to be much more about the clarity of consonants and, and, and voice rather than the projection of it. Yeah, which obviously, you know, there's a lot of that in, in that book as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd, love to, I'd, I'd love for us two to be in a room together and work <laughs> alongside oh, each other because yeah i think it would um it would be yeah so much fun so much fun. Uh, either that or we'd kill each other by the end <laughs> <laughs> or possibly both <laughs> possibly but it would end in carnage no it would be it would be so much fun <laughs> can i ask you then because i know that you have stood on the stage you've done a tedx talk hmm. um can you tell us about what the, what the experience of, of actually being on a stage and being a speaker yourself in relation to teaching it in, you know, did you, did you follow your own rules? Of course. I'd be a hypocrite not to. Absolutely. Modi modified by the requirement of doing a TEDx. Mm. So there are some very specific rules you have to follow to do a TEDx, such as the duration and all of that kind of all of that kind of thing. Um, and the fact that you're supposed to stand on the red dot and stay on the red dot um yeah spoiler i didn't stay on the red dot as much as i'm supposed to um you're a rebel because well there were points in my in my, my tedx where it, it made more sense for me to be on stage left and then move to stage right as i ironically here as i told a story because the story was about a journey and then just walking across made an awful lot of sense whereas strictly speaking i'm supposed to have stayed on the red dot and and not moved and stuff like that. Uh, but the principle is the same for any presentation. You need to know your material inside out, back to front and sideways before you even begin to think about designing the presentation. There's no, there's, there's no two ways about that. You've got to know your material. Um, and the process of refining it was quite interesting um, because any TEDx franchise owner worth their salt will have people who help you through the process of devising your TEDx, or they will hire you or me or somebody like me to, to help that. So there will be some support. You're never gonna go out there, you're never gonna go out there cold. 
Um, and one of the things I found that the most fun about it was that because I was dividing the presentation and giving it to different people, I would be getting mutually exclusive advice from the two, three people that were working with me. And then I had to decide whose advice I was going to listen to. Whereas normally I just listen to my own advice and, and my wife, if you see what I mean, um, before I take it live in front of an audience. And I actually ended up uh, literally on the basis of some feedback from that I got, I literally changed my opening sentence to become my closing sentence. Um, I thought I'd got this really, really powerful opening. And, and yes, it is a really, really powerful opening or would have been a really powerful opening, but it is an even more powerful close. <laughs> um, and I hadn't, I wouldn't have spotted that for myself. I only spotted that because somebody asked the question, you know, an outsider asked the question because you're too close to it. You are always too close to your own presentation if you're doing that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, no, and I, that's absolutely, half the time that's what I think I am really when I, you know, when I go into to working with people, if they've got a presentation or they've got, you know, something that they need to get across, an idea or whatever, is I'm just sort of that outsider that's there to say, well, actually, I don't understand that. Are oh, your audience going to understand that? Mm. Uh, I think you should put that there. I mean, and that's basically a lot of a lot of what I of what I do. And I'm sure it's sort of probably similar Often. with you. How, is, yes. how was it? It's like being an actor taking yeah. direction. How, how was it to be on the receiving end? Uh, my ego got in the way more than it should have done. Um, sometimes justifiably, sometimes not. Um, it was a challenge, but I was aware that I needed to play by the TEDx rules. So as far as I could, I played by the TEDx rules. Um, but yeah, I have to confess it was a challenge. It was not as big a challenge as the actual gig itself, which was delivered in the middle of lockdown. So it was delivered to an empty auditorium. Um, oh. And I'd rehearsed something as though there was going to be an audience. And then at the last minute, there wasn't an audience. So then we kind of, they were watching live streams of it and that kind of stuff. But I was performing to an empty auditorium. And that just sucks the energy out of anything you do. You know? You're looking at rows of empty seats and throwing a joke out there and praying that somebody thinks it's funny. <laughs> and of course, you can't tell if anybody thinks it's funny. But what's worse is that it's likely to be less funny because people sitting there watching it on their own don't hear anybody else laughing. No. And therefore, they're less likely to... I mean, comedy stuff on television, they, they, they put a comedy, a laughter soundtrack on it because nothing makes people laugh quite as much as hearing other people laugh. Mm. Whereas this this thing I'm talking about, I threw a, a joke out there and I could hear it just hit the floor with a resounding... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that shook my confidence a bit because that's always got a, a round of applause. That joke had always got a round, of, a round of laughter and a bit of an applause thing. And this time it didn't because there was nobody there to... There's nobody there to laugh. So it was it was hard work. Right. Don't get me wrong. I'm proud of the result. I'd stand by the result, but by gum, it was hard work. <laughs> do they allow you to do more than one? Can you go back and do another one? Yeah, in principle. Well, TEDxers are owned by anybody who's going to say they'll stick to the rights and pays the license fee. So, yeah, right. in theory, you could go around and do as many TEDxers as you want. Whether that would work out in practice or not, I have no idea, but... Yeah. Um, one might argue that it would be difficult to find that much new material. Yes. Because yes. one of the big things about a TEDx is that it's supposed to be new. 
so you can't i mean i couldn't take the the the, the presentation that i've done the tedx that i've done about how to hear bad news and whore it out to lots of other tedxers because that would be in contravention of their terms right. and conditions but in theory if i could write a new gig every six months i could do it it's never going to happen <laughs> but in theory you could take a, a you know a tedx round to you know every so for example the tedx i did was newcastle university in theory i could then have gone and done tedx newcastle in yeah. practice i'm never going to but in theory i could yeah oh interesting very interesting because i'm sure there's you know there's lots of people out there that would uh that would benefit and and enjoy standing on a stage, including including myself. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left, Simon. So I'm just going to say, if anybody else got any questions? Then please put them uh, put them there, and we'll we'll endeavour to answer them in the next two minutes. But while we're is there we're, anybody we're, out there? there? Anybody out there? Uh, and obviously, again, if you're watching the replay, then please you know do comment, leave us any questions, and uh, we'll get back to you. But just in the last couple of minutes, Simon, question that I ask each week is what makes a good speaker good and a bad speaker suck? Can I plead the Fifth Amendment? Because I neither know nor care. Ooh. For me, what matters is, did the presentation work? As in, if the presentation was, in, was let's, let's pretend it's a, a sales pitch. If the presentation gets an investor to come along and give you £200,000, the presentation was a success. It doesn't matter whether people thought you were good in the room. It's For me, presentations are a means to an end. Therefore, getting the effect is what matters. And I have seen so many presentations where you got a round of applause and people thought you were absolutely awesome in the room because you've been funny and entertaining and witty and yada, yada, yada. And then nobody does with anything with what it is you have given them. So for me, the measure is if you give people something in the presentation, do they use it or not? And a good presenter is somebody who gets his or her audience to do something with the material that they have been given during the presentation. I've seen sucky presenters have a massive impact. I have seen great presenters have no impact. Now, to be fair, I have seen more often great presenters have great impact. <laughs> but in principle, if you suck, it doesn't matter so long as people do whatever the hell it is you're supposed to get them to do. That sounds really mechanical, doesn't it? But well, obviously, it comes from 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 you and from what you do and who you work with. So so I can absolutely yeah. understand that. I mean, and, and, and actually, that's that was the answer to the question. What makes a good speaker good yeah. is the fact that they get they get the outcome. Um, so, yeah, I think you, you actually did answer the question. I can absolutely understand what you're saying. Um, so it just let me put up uh, your your website, because I think if people want to find out more about you and find out how to get in contact with you, is that the best place to go? That's the best place to go. It's the world's most arrogant title, isn't it? Um, in yeah. my defence, I did not pick that website name. Um, the whole brand comes off the back of the last but one book, and the publishers were they were launching a series of books called the the Genius series, and there was Presentation Genius and Sales Genius and Marketing Genius, and and I have to say the whole reason and this sounds so bad, the whole reason that Presentation Genius, the book Presentation Genius, was a, was a bestseller was entirely down to my publishers. 
they they knew so much what they were doing about how to get people to buy. It, it was a work of art. Just watching them sell stuff was just oh. phenomenal. Hats oh, well, off people, to them. Yeah, well, people have to go and, go and find the book. I didn't realise there was a book, but I'd apologies yeah. for that. Oh, it's, it's, it's old now. It's old now. And don't, I mean, I only get a five pence in every... <laughs> Five pounds or so. Don't don't. There's no point rushing out. But I'm I'm not going to get rich from the back of the book. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been it has been fun talking to you. So I really really thank really you. enjoyed it. I've really and, enjoyed it too. Yeah. Well, we'll have to do this again. I'm I'm hoping I'm going to take a break until after until the new year. But planning ahead for these, I'm hoping that there will be sort of panel opportunities and uh, and different different ways that I can use this platform. So A panel so, conversation could yes. be a lot of fun with three or four of us all yeah. going, you're wrong, I'm right, yeah. you're wrong, I'm right. That could be quite <laughs> So look forward to that. And if you're out there in the stream, live streaming world, thank you for listening. Thanks for watching. If you're watching on replay, leave us a comment and like, subscribe, whatever you do in these circumstances. And uh, I will see you again after Christmas. Thank you very much, Simon. Take care and thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, then please leave a five-star review on whichever platform you're on. And if you'd like to receive information about future guests or would like to know more about Power to Speak coaching, then sign up for our fortnightly newsletter at powertospeak.co.uk. Bye for now.